I don't know if you've noticed, but God's ways are often not our ways. And sometimes the people God chooses to use can be surprising. For example, uh, my mom, uh, when she was alive, was a very nominal Christian. Um, And yet, quite often, she was the most prophetic voice speaking into my life. There were numerous times I can think of where my mom, completely unknown to her, would just be talking about something, and in the middle of the conversation, God would highlight her words and do something in my heart that said, you should pay attention to this. Um, I think about a young man that um, I was mentoring several years ago who uh, was working his way to be a realtor, Um, And a really good one at that, just a super nice guy, um, really passionate for Jesus. Honestly, one of those people, just the nicest person you'd ever meet. Um, uh, Our kids love him, our family loves him. And I remember taking him for coffee one day. I'd known him for a little bit of time. We sat down for coffee and I'm like, dude, tell me your story. And he's like, well, and he gets a little bit red in the face and he's like, I'm not sure I really want to. And I'm like, well, well, just try me. He's like, well, eh. I grew up in a really nice neighborhood here in town. Uh, My parents gave me everything um, and I decided to be a drug dealer and a heroin addict. And so I was the guy at high school dealing drugs to my friends. I was the guy that everyone avoided because I was gaunt, I was stealing from people. Uh, and, and he's like, and eventually my parents like sent me away to some uh, rehabilitation center and God grabbed hold of my heart and now you see me now. And I'm looking at this guy going, how on earth? Like if you'd seen him previously, how on earth would someone have looked at him and gone, you know, that's the person that God is gonna use in this way moving forward. And I, I could list lots of people, but when I think about the way God uses people that he shouldn't, I just need to look at myself, Right? Uh, A a broken kid in a broken home, uh, abused as a child, very sexually messed up. I was a mess. I stole, I smoked, I parted, I did a whole bunch of things that I shouldn't, but I was the golden child. So everyone thought it was amazing and most people didn't know that all that was going on in the background. But if God can take me (laughs) and he can look at all the things that are in my background and use me to do what he does, it just proves time and time again that God is someone who uses the ways that we don't expect to do the work that he wants to do. Today, um, we're gonna be looking at Joshua chapter two, and we're gonna look at a story that reminds us of just this, that God's ways are not our ways, that God can use absolutely anyone, that God can use people that you would never dream that he would use, uh, that he's sovereignly working in the background in every situation, and her story is gonna show you and hopefully convince you if you don't already believe it, that nothing in your past or your presence is gonna define who you are for your future if your faith is in him. So we're in the book of Joshua. Joshua is a stunning book in the Bible um, and it's filled with excitement and anticipation as the people of God walk into the promised land to take hold of the promises that God has for them. 
And we're going through this book because for every person sitting in this room, you have not taken hold of all of the promises that God has for you. There is more that God wants to do in your life. And as we work through this book, I want you to keep seeing that God is holding out promises in front of us and we get to walk as his people individually and corporately into seeing those promises happen in front of us. So chapter one, Joshua uh, introduces well, the book of Joshua introduces himself um, as the new Moses, right as we're expecting, right? We know Moses is dying. They're on the brink of crossing into the promised land. Chapter one zooms in on Joshua, the new Moses, who's gonna lead the people into the promises of God. What you expect with chapter two is that the people are suddenly gonna cross the Jordan into the promised land and have the victory that's there. But instead of that, Joshua elongates the introduction because he doesn't want us thinking that it's only people like Joshua that get to have what is being promised. And so in Joshua chapter two, he's gonna zoom in on another character that for many in the room is a very beloved character. And we're gonna see what God wants us to understand through her life. So this is Joshua chapter two, if you wanna read it with me. It says, then... Just reminding us that it's connected to the first chapter, not a separate thing. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look out over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman who had taken the two men and hidden them, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she'd laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a far greater fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was a part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you've tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. 
And unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we're doing, we'll be released from the oath that you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hearts. All the people are melting in fear because of us. I don't know how you feel listening to this story. The story of Rahab, for me, is pretty spectacular. Um, stories like this, though, there's, there's a couple of challenges as we come to a story like this. One is, the story is so familiar that we just kind of gloss over the story because we know what Rahab does and we know how the end of the story works out. Um, and so it diminishes how spectacular the story actually is. The other side of it is, there are things hidden in this passage that give Hebrew readers a deeper understanding of what's going on. And if we don't know the backstory, then we miss some of what is utterly breathtaking about how the writer has put this story together. I think sometimes we forget. So we say, right, the Bible is the word of God. But sometimes we forget or diminish or feel like it somehow diminishes God's word when we say, but the Bible is also a piece of literature. And the people writing scripture were really deliberate in the way they recorded their stories and their information, sometimes in some of the most beautiful ways to help get their point across. And right here in chapter two, this chapter is, I can only say it's full of surprises or shocks from beginning to end that are supposed to keep the reader feeling the intensity of the story as we read. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna run through, this a little, it feels a little weird to do this today, but what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna run through a bunch of the things that the author has put in here that were supposed to surprise you and supposed to shock you. And partly why I'm doing this is I want us today to enter into the mindset of the the Jewish people as they're on the bank, as the spies are going into the land, as they're encountering the, the events that are happening, I want us to try and feel them and feel some of the intensity of what's going on because I think that helps us understand the power of what God is doing in this moment. So the first surprises we're going to see happen right in verse number one, and I'm going to call them the two uh-oh moments because if you're reading and you know the backstory, and sometimes these things are easier to find if you're reading it in original language, but, but there are some things in here that you're supposed to see, and if you know the Bible and know the Old Testament stories, you should know at least one of the uh-oh moments that you see here. So when Joshua is recording this story for his people, first uh-oh is, uh, just, just read the verse actually, Joshua son of Nun secretly sent two spies from Shittim and said, go look out over the land. These two things are little hyperlinks or clues in the story to help us remember what's happened before 
and then to take that information into understanding what's about to happen. So the first one is just the word two spies, right? Hands up if you read the word two spies and you were like, okay, I know the other story. Like three people. Does no one read their Bibles? <laughs> right? We used to sing this song, 12 men went to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad, two were good. Do you know that one? Yeah. Um, anyway. Number, numbers 13 and 14 is this moment where Moses is approaching the promised land. They've just crossed the, the Red Sea. God has done this miraculous move. They are now heading toward the promised land. Moses says, I've got this great idea. We're going to send 12 spies into the land who are going to go over the whole land. They're going to investigate, and then they're going to come back and give us a report. And so he picks 12 leaders, one from each of the 12 tribes. They get sent into the land, and as the story goes, they go into the land. They, all, they, they see the fertile land, the, the milk, the honey, the grapes on the vines. They see all of that. But then they see these giant people and these intimidating folk and they come back and Joshua and Caleb say, we've got this. People over there are terrified. Those people aren't, big, aren't too big for us. We can go in the land, we can take it. But the other 10 are like, oh no, he was like six foot two and that's really tall and that scares me. Um, and, and, and they start sowing amongst all of the people of Israel, we can't go into the land. God's going to take us there and he's trying to kill us. And they sow descent into the land. And Numbers 13 and 14 is where God is suddenly like, look at these people. They want to go back to Egypt. I've just done the Red Sea. I've just rescued them. We've done the Passover thing. And they want to go back. And he gets so frustrated. He looks at Moses and like, okay, we're going to wipe out all of Israel. And I'm going to start again with you. Sometimes I'm like, that might be quite cool, actually. Uh, <laughs> wipe them all out and start again. Um, but, but in that moment, it, Moses is like, no, but your name and your reputation, all these people have watched what you've done. They're terrified. And if all of a sudden they've watched the way you've worked and the lives of your people, they've watched the miracles you've done, the transformation you've done in them, they've watched the way you've defeated their enemies, they've heard the promises of what they're going to, going to get and the promises of this land that they're going to walk into. If you kill them now, people are going to think you weren't able to. So don't start over with me like, God, be merciful to them. And God is like, okay, I will be merciful, but here's what's going to happen. All of this generation that are grumbling, we're going to wander for 40 years until you're all dead, except Caleb and Joshua, the only two who are faithful to me in this process. So Moses sent some spies into the land and it didn't go very well, right? So the start of this story where it says, so Joshua decides to send two spies. We're supposed to go, uh-oh. We know what happens. You send spies into the land and it's gonna go really bad. And we're, like, and we're meant to be going, hang on, they've just done that thing We've just, Moses is dead. We've just been promised we're about to cross the River Jordan. Are they really about to, as they cross into the Jordan, do the exact same thing? And are they ever going to end up in the land? That's what we're supposed to be wondering. And if you're in any doubt that that's what we're supposed to be wondering, the other hyperlink in this passage is the one that makes it really clear to people that this is what's the case. The other word in here that we don't often think about is the name Shittim. 
And your Bible translation might translate it it Acacia Grove. But there is another place in Scripture where Israel is camped at a place called Shittim. And let's see what happens in Numbers 25 when the people are camped at this place. Israel was staying in Shittim. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. So you've got two spies at Shittim walking into a prostitute's house. What do you think people are assuming is about to happen in the story? Not only are they going to come back with a bad report and we're going to grumble again, but these people are going to walk in here. They're going to have sexual intimacy with someone that's forbidden. They're going to start worshiping other gods and they're going to be led astray. Do you feel the tension, right? At the start of the story, I'm just going to read you the line again. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. People are like, double uh uh-oh. This is not going to go well. Couple of things I want you to feel. I want you to feel the tension, but I, w- I want you to notice another couple of things. Joshua, um, we have a tendency in the in the church or in life to say this: "I tried that before and it didn't work. Therefore, we're never ever going to do it again." Anyone done that? Joshua, in this instance, could say, "We tried the spy thing before. We're never ever doing that again." But what Joshua does this time is he goes, we sent 12 spies the last time. Only two of them were any good. So maybe we'll only send two spies this time. And there's another hidden word in there. He secretly sent two spies. Last time, we publicly set apart 12 heads of all of the tribes. And we sent them into the land with pomp and fanfare. This time, we're going to do it on the DL. We're going to send them in quietly. No one's going to know about it. And I'm assuming Joshua picked some people that he trusted. I'm sure he picked some people that he uh, might have thought would do a good job, which is why the second surprise in the passage is supposed to startle us. Number two, they fail miserably. Worst spies that ever existed. Let's send them into the land. So they cross over and they go to their first location and it says, the king of Jericho has found out that there's two spies in the land. And they're here to spy out the land. So what does he do? He sends them to the house that he knows they're at. I'm just like, if, if the US is going to send some Navy SEALs into foreign territory to scout out the land and make sure they're not caught, this is not the way we're supposed to do it miserable failures. And I, you know, I, I do find myself wondering what the picking process was. The consequence of being caught spying out of the land at best would be death. At worst, or worst would be that they'll cut off legs and poke out eyes and you end up living the rest of your life as an outcast cripple. And so this is two people that got to have some guts to be willing to go spy. I did find myself wondering, did Joshua handpick two people that he really respected or did, are these guys that volunteered? <laughs> like, I want to go spy at the land and I know my first stop. <laughs> right? I just wonder who he's picking, but the spies are a miserable failure. So not only has he set us up 
that these people are about to cross into the land in a very precarious situation, but, but we know right away that they've not done a good job of what they're supposed to be doing. Which leads us on into the story to the third surprise, and that's that Rahab, this prostitute, risks her life to save the lives of two strangers that end up in her property. And I think the surprise is really her willingness to lie to government officials in order to protect their life. Look what it says. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So they're, they're asking where they are. She says, yes, they came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. We know that's not true from what she's about to say later. At dusk when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. So if you go really quickly, I think you can catch up with them. They went that away, right? <laughs> It is not surprising that Rahab as a prostitute would be lying because Rahab as a prostitute has built her life on lies. This is not to say to lie mean, to be a prostitute means you're a liar, but what do prostitutes do? They sell themselves to men for money and they tell the men that are there exactly what they want to hear to feel good about themselves Oh, I saw, I saw John Tills in your house the other day. Oh, I don't know who that is. Never seen him before. Never heard of him, right? Um, she's used to lying to protect the identity of the people that come in her place. She's used to walking down the street and seeing her most consistent client and pretending like she has no idea who he is. She's used to lying. But the surprising thing is here is not that she's lying, but that she's willing to lie at the cost of her own life, risk her own life in the process. I think it's interesting. The writer doesn't make any qualitative statement or moral judgment about her lies. He doesn't say she was wrong to lie. He doesn't say she was right to lie. He, just, he says nothing. And he leaves it to us to follow the rest of the story to try and figure out the moral worthiness of what she does in this moment. Some people try to use this passage as one that says, like, well, there's justification in Scripture that we should lie. Um, no. <laughs> we worship the God of grace and truth. Uh, and we let our yes be yes and our no be no. We be people that walk in truth as he walks in truth. But this is one of these situations. Our world is full of messy situations. Do I allow these people to die? Or do I lie to this person to protect their life? And I think in this moment, based on some things that we're about to see are going on inside of our heart, I think she chooses the lesser of two evils, though it doesn't justify being people who lie. I do think it's interesting too, I don't know if the writer intends this, I can't help but watch her lying to the officials to save these two men's lives and jump straight to the beginning of the Exodus story uh, where they're trying to kill all the kids and the midwives are, are lying about whether or not the boys are born in order to save the Israelite children. I wonder if there's a pointing back to the righteousness of those women uh, who lied and risked their lives to save the people of God. But the surprise is, Rahab, the surprise is not that Rahab is a liar, but that she's risking her life to save these people. The fourth surprise in the story, which is probably the climax of the tension moment, and again, I don't think we stop long enough to notice it or think about the implications of it, and it's that they're locked in Jericho. The men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. 
Jericho is a fortified city with a big wall and a big gate. These two men have gone in to spy the land and they've been busted. They've made their way to the house of a prostitute. They're currently, I want you to think about this, the people of God and all that they're expected to do as they walk into the promised land are currently lying, hiding under some flowers on the roof of a prostitute's house. Maybe not even the roof, maybe just the upstairs room where she would usually do things. And they're lying here in a prostitute's home with the gates of the city locked and no way out. And now they're completely at the mercy. So like, what can happen? Maybe someone's gonna hear them as they move around up there and someone's gonna get an idea that someone's there and they're gonna be discovered. Maybe when they go to sleep, like has happened in other stories in scripture, while they're sleeping, the woman's gonna run out and tell people that, that they're there and she's gonna earn respect and uh, get standing in her community again by exposing these spies. Maybe the, the men that go out into uh, hunting for the two spies, maybe they're gonna realize that, that they've been duped and they're gonna go back and search her house. Uh, maybe the king's just gonna order search her. Maybe she's gonna die and they're gonna die. So they're lying upstairs on the roof of the house in a prostitute's house covered by sheaths, not knowing if they're gonna make it through the night with no way out of the city. Like this is, if you're making a movie, this is the moment, right? The moment in every war movie, in every deception movie where, where that person is hiding and all the bad guys are around them and you're going, are they gonna find them? This is what we're supposed to be feeling at this moment in the story. There's, there's one other piece that we're meant to wonder as the readers is, are they gonna sleep with her? Are they gonna compromise the thing that God has asked them to do? They're in a prostitute's house overnight. She's been mighty kind to them. Um, so we're supposed to feel the tension uh, uh, both of the risk of their life, the risk of compromise, the risk of being caught, the risk of the whole uh, process into the promised land being completely thwarted at this point in the story. They are completely in the hands of Rahab and completely at her mercy. The next surprise we see in the story is the declaration of Rahab's faith. Rahab makes a faith commitment here or a confession of faith here that is really breathtaking when you start to think about it. Chapter two, verse nine, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard, we've heard the stories. We know how he dried up the Red Sea. We know what you did to the other kings and the way you destroyed them. Our hearts melted in fear because of it all. And then this statement, for the Lord your God is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. She'd heard. We forget at this point in the story, Israel's been wandering for 40 years. The Red Sea happened 40 years ago. Some of the conquests of these kings happened a long time ago. In her profession, she's privy to information. Guests come in and out, clients come in and out. And she's hearing the stories of what's happening for 40 years, or at some point over this 40 years, she's been contemplating the news she's been hearing about this God. And the last statement is the part that lets us know that she has made a change of allegiance in her life from her Canaanite people and the people of Jericho to the God of Israel. I've heard who he is. 
I've heard what he does, and I am confessing to you that he is the Lord of heaven above and on earth below. And she confesses a truth that Yahweh is the one true God. I find myself wondering how many stories did she hear? How many pieces of news came through uh, her house over the 40 years? How much did she hear of the miraculous provision and the manna and the quail and the water from the rock? How much did she hear of the judgment for the ways that they sinned and the anger of the God coming upon the people? I, I wonder. I wonder how many people God used to communicate the good news to her that led her to the point that she was willing to acknowledge God as the one true God, so that by the time he sends his people into the land, there's someone there ready to protect them and build their faith and be the instrument that God uses to remind them that God has everything in control. It's good to be reminded that you may be part of the trickle in somebody else's life. The story of the way God answered your prayer this week the story of something you read in scripture that encouraged you, the story of a friend experiencing healing or someone in the church lovingly supporting someone else. Could be that for 40 years, your next door neighbor has been listening to this steady trickle of the news of who this God is and what he does. And it could be that your neighbor at some point in the last 40 years, unbeknownst to anyone else, has decided that that God is the right one and is just waiting on the person to come and help them understand how to walk that faith out as they walk in the world. Think of the one initiative. We've all chosen one person and said, we're gonna pray one minute every day. We're gonna buy one gift, invite them for one meal, bring them to church once, party with them once. We're just gonna think a whole bunch of ones, those people. What if you're gonna be part of the trickle that builds their faith to lead them to the same point that Rahab is here? I don't know what's more surprising that Rahab as a prostitute confesses faith in Yahweh, that Rahab as a woman confesses uh, faith in Yahweh, that Rahab as a Canaanite confesses faith in Yahweh. What are they being asked to do? They're being asked to go into the land, to take over the land because all of the people in the land deserve destruction because they're living so wickedly, sacrificing kids in the fire, burning kids, sleeping with their parents, all the crazy stuff that they're doing. And so God's like, this is miserable. We're gonna wipe them out. This female Canaanite prostitute had already received the knowledge of God and was there ready, waiting. God can work in any person, in any place, and doesn't actually need you to do it, right? He wants us to be part of it. He wants us to be part of the trickle into someone's life. It's shocking. The enemy of God's people, the most unlikely candidate, is the one in the story confessing faith in God. The sixth surprise is that a covenant gets made. Verses, same chunk. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of them. And the men assured her, if you don't, tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully. Why is this a surprise? Because God's told them when you go into the land, don't make any covenants with the inhabitants. 
We're going to wipe them out, so don't promise anything, because if you promise things to them, I have to honor your promises, so don't make promises. I wrote the word Rahab's covenant because there there is a commitment made between these two people, but again, hyperlinks in here are clues in the passage that we don't notice. Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. What do you think? What word might be there as kindness? It's the word chesed. The word all the way through scripture is the word God uses to describe his covenant love with his people. Chesed love, the highest form of covenant commitment. Rahab's been listening. She knows the story. She knows the covenants. What does she say? She doesn't say, I've been nice to you. I've been generous to you. I've been hospitable to you. I have shown you chesed. I have modeled for you the covenant love of the Father in the way I've protected you. Now you're obligated to show me chesed back because you're part of the people of God. And the people of God walk in the character of the God that we worship. And so the response, we will treat you kindly and faithfully. We will. We'll show you chesed. And we'll show you emet. And those are, those are, those are phrases that come all the way through. Isaac, uh, as he's marrying Rebecca. God, show me chesed and emet. Show me kindness and faithfulness as I go in search of, of a wife. She's learned something of the character of God. A prostitute plying her trade in the middle of Canaan has grasped the chesed of God. The final surprise that's in this part of the passage, I'm just calling the scarlet cord. The men had said to her, the oath you made to swear will not be binding on you unless when we enter the land, you've tied the scarlet cord in the window. I don't like when I listen to people preach or when I read commentaries and they go, that equals the blood of Jesus. Because it's red. And it's a rope, so it probably trickles like his blood did from the cross, right? We can't jump too quickly to making this reference and be symbolic of things that it's not. However, with all the other allusions that are going on in the passage, all the other clues and hyperlinks to the backstory of Israel, I do find myself wondering, as they look up at the house and they see a window with red over the top of it, if they're thinking about the Passover, when the people, when the, the enemies of Israel, the people of Israel were going to lose their firstborn son. And God said, take the blood of the goat and put it across the mantle of your doorway. And then when the destroyer comes, he will see the red and he will save the people inside while destroying all the others. I don't think it's coincidental that you've got a moment of destruction coming. The army of God is coming into the place of Jericho and there is over the thing that marks the entryway or exitway in this instance into and out of her house. I'm sure she's used that window multiple times for the discretion of some people. Um, That doorway, that window with the red over it symbolizing the way that God often works to protect those who walk in faith to the instructions that he gives and destroys those round about. It was just a scarlet cord, but perhaps we are meant to see the allusions back to the Passover. Perhaps we are meant to see it as one of the symbolic things that helps differentiate between those who are judged and those who are saved. It's not the scarlet cord that saves her, it's her faith in God 
It's her willingness to do what the people said. It's her faith put into action that is the thing that saves her as she acts in response to the instructions given by the people of this chesed God. And that's when we can now jump to the New Testament and look at Jesus, right? That we put our faith in him, that he is the dividing line between those who are destined to destruction and those who have eternal salvation. It's our faith in him. And you can't just say, I thought about putting the scarlet robe, the scarlet rope up, scarlet cord up. We have to say, I put my life in his hands and now my life is gonna evidence to the world the faith that I'm living. At times I'm gonna risk my life for the sake of God's name and his people. I'm gonna work hard to reflect the chesed loving kindness of God to the people in the covenant community. I'm gonna act in generosity to the people out there. I'm gonna play my role, be one of the voices that's the trickle in the bucket of someone else's life that leads them to faith in Jesus. The final surprises of this passage happen not in the passage. So I've got three final things that I wanna point to. There are surprises that come in this story that, that, that should blow our minds as we think about what God has done. Uh, The first one is the contrast between Joshua and Rahab as a double introduction to the book of Joshua. Joshua is the story of the people of God being brought into the, the, the land of Canaan. And God doesn't just start with, here's Joshua, my holy, proven to be holy, righteous, upright leader who has deep intimacy with me amongst the people of God. Now let's go have victory. He sets up Joshua, the righteous Israeli male who's a leader of the tribe of, of Israel, who's spent t- uh, tribe of Ephraim, who spent time in the tabernacle in the presence of God, sets that up as the leader who's going to play a part in the rescuing work with the name Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh uh, the name Joshua, Yahweh saves. And then alongside it, they bring another introduction to just let us know that all the way through the Bible, God's made it really clear that the covenant he gave to Abraham is that through him, all nations would be blessed. That it's not just the highest leader, most righteous male ethnic Jew living according to the law who's worthy to be used by God in the work of his people, but even a Canaanite female prostitute who's fully unrighteous is equally the type of character that God wants to use to lead his people into the promises that he has for us. I don't know, that gives me goosebumps. (laughs) There may be prostitutes in strip clubs around Hillsborough who are just waiting on the people of God having a conversation with them because God wants them to plant churches. God wants them to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. God wants to use their tongue and repurpose it to teach the gospel in a language that has never had it before. There may be a guy shooting up drugs in a park who's homeless, who God is just waiting on someone to give him the time of day to start putting those little deposits in the bank that will help him to understand that he is the one true God. The contrast is startling. The second of the latter three, Rahab's mentions as we go through the New Testament, if you've 
If you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with Rahab, you know these. But Rahab's story doesn't end there, right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. Hebrews 11, we call it the hall of faith or the hall of fame of the Bible. And it lists by faith, Abraham was called. And by faith, Moses led the people. And by faith, they crossed the Red Sea. And by faith, spoiler alert, they defeated Jericho. And by faith, the prostitute Rahab, uh, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, the writer of Hebrews looks at Rahab as one of the prime examples of the sorts of faith we should have as the people of God. A Canaanite prostitute is who we're supposed to be looking at. James 2.25, James is telling people, you say you have faith and there's no works, I show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead and useless. And so he's explaining that the way Abraham expressed his faith and then says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. The prostitute in that moment declared righteous. It's crazy. You, with your worst, most broken sin, God can in those moments of faith declare it uh, healed, forgiven, righteous. Last one is uh, Rahab's place in God's plan. Rahab, David's great, great grandmother. You, you see right there, you know, Salmon, father of Boaz, his mother's Rahab. Boaz marries Ruth. We know the Ruth story. A Moabitess, another person not of the people of God whose remarkable faith brings her into the story. Rahab's faith opens the way for Ruth's faith, which opens the way for King David, the best of the kings, to come and to live here and uh, to start the process of the throne of, the, 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 the throne of David that Jesus would one day come and stand on. So you go back to the beginning. Joshua secretly sent two spies out from Shittim. How's the story gonna go? Are the spies gonna do what they did before? Are the men gonna give in with the prostitute? Because of course, all a prostitute can do is lead the men astray, right? They had no idea that that very prostitute was the woman that God was gonna use, perhaps. I don't think at this point Joshua needed to scout out the land. The guys did a terrible job of it. All they could come back and say was, people are scared of you. Perhaps the only reason God moved Joshua to send two spies into the land was to save Rahab and her family because he saw the faith of a righteous woman. And perhaps that's what God wants for us. Perhaps he's waiting on us to be sent on a journey where we think we're going in to uh, assess the land and perhaps on the way, the only reason he sent you there was because you're going to encounter someone along the way that as you share your faith with them, they're going to give their life to Jesus and play a mighty part in God's kingdom. I think God wants to build our faith. The book of Joshua is all about that. He wants to build our faith as we celebrate what he's done. We've been doing that in the life of our church. He wants to remind us of the role that we play, just being one trickle in someone's life over 40 years that may open their heart to the truth of Jesus and, and he wants to send us out. 
with that in our heart, knowing as we go to Super Bowl parties today, that there are gonna be people sitting next to you that may have heard stories of Jesus, but are waiting on your story to lead them over the edge and into the kingdom. So as we press on, as we leave here today, right? You have a unique place in his plan. God's ways are not your ways. So he may take you one direction and you think that's where where he wants you to go, but he's just taking that direction to reach one person on the way. Like Rahab, your past, your brokenness, the decisions you make do not have to be the defining part of your future. And rather than being a badge of shame in the pursuit of Jesus can become the very thing that people use to celebrate the work of God in your life. Like Rahab, you do not have to be special. You do not have to be elite. You just have to have faith. So I'm gonna pray And then I have a question that I want you to discuss. And it's this. (laughs) What kinds of people do you write off and why? Who are the Rahabs that you would look at and go, God would never use them. God hates those people. They would never come to faith. Who are they and why? Let me pray. God, I thank you for Thank you for the knowledge of you. Thank you for the gift of the scriptures that we get to pour over to see your heart, to see your way of working in the world, uh, to build our faith in who you are, to challenge the brokenness of our life so that we become more like you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're inside of us illuminating the word and applying it to the deep recesses of our hearts. Thank you for the people that you chose to write scripture, the beautiful literary ways that you worked to hide these gems in plain sight so that those who are willing to seek you and study it can have treasure for eternity. And then God, thank you for Rahab. Thank you that thousands of years ago in a little town in the middle of nowhere, there was a woman who was broken but who heard the stories of you and pondered them in her heart and gave herself to you and and you saw it and you welcomed it into your people and you used her powerfully in the work of your kingdom. So God, I pray as we leave here today that we would be a bit more like Rahab, a bit more faith, a bit more willing to risk our lives for your name, a bit more willing to acknowledge the truth and the reality of who you are so that the lost can be saved and your name can be exalted. God bless our church. Help us to follow you well in Jesus' name. Amen.